This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Throughout Buddhist traditions, there's a pervasive use of the metaphor of delusion to describe something about our our usual state. It goes along with metaphors of waking up or coming to see reality directly as an alternative to this picture of uh, delusion. When we think of delusion, uh, what it means literally is... um, Typically, uh, you know, psychotic kind of uh, total misjudgment about the nature of reality. One that is often accompanied by a great sense of certitude. If you uh, have ever really spent any time talking to someone in the grip of, say, a paranoid delusion Uh, they have a view of the world that they're absolutely convinced of uh, in terms of uh, a conspiracy, what's going on how they're being watched, how they're being controlled, right? They've they've seen it and they know it Uh, they may keep quiet about it because they know people uh, don't agree with them uh, and are part of the conspiracy, but their inner certitude is pretty solid when they're in the grip of a delusion. And so that's the metaphor we're given for our ordinary state of mind, that we're really in the grip of something that crazy uh, that we're absolutely sure of. And so we have to think about what's the nature of that delusion and uh, what would the alternative be? What would it be to wake up from that or be cured of that? Now, if somebody tells you, you know, you're crazy, uh, you're not particularly inclined to listen to them. And most people who are crazy won't listen to you (laughs) if you try to tell them that. But uh, eventually, um, something happens where they see that holding this view uh, isn't working so well for them. And that there's something about, even though they feel certain, uh, it means that they're in a constant kind of adversarial position with life. And uh, they're suffering a great deal, and everyone is their enemy. And uh, even if they're right, this is pretty unpleasant. Uh, 
And so Buddhism pretty much says we're in that position. And most people come to practice with um, some awareness that uh, something about what they're doing isn't uh, working for them. That there's something about this life that is causing suffering and we don't quite know what to do about it. We don't know where the problem is exactly, but it's gone on long enough and it's bad enough that we're actually willing to consider the possibility that we're nuts and that that's the source of the problem, right? Uh, Now everybody starts out, you know, wanting to think that the source of problems in their life are on the outside rather than the inside. Uh, and everybody, in a way, will, will try first the solution of mastery. You know, if I just get enough control over the people and things in my life, then things will go well. Because if we all start with a certain sense that... Uh, you know, it's a kind of uh, confidence in our natural common sense, and uh, we see things clearly, but a lot of those other people out there just don't see it. But if I could just convince them, or just get control of them, or just run things myself, it would be all right. And we all do this basically as long as we feel like we can get away with it. Uh, but we all inevitably bump up against some limit. Um, we can't control the world or other people the way we think we should be able to to make things right. And that they're all, inevitably, even if we're Alexander the Great or a hedge fund manager, uh, we bump into limits of things like old age, death, sick, sickness, accident. Uh, that are just intrinsically out of our control and that um, a big part of the pain in our life turns out not to be amenable to mastery. So the, 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 when we realize with one degree or another that um, we're not going to bend the world to our will in a way to make it turn out okay for ourselves, typical move is to uh, turn inward and to say, well, if I can't control other people or the way life is going, I should at least be able to control myself. I ought to be able to get control of my own inner world, my own thoughts or feelings, mood. Um, And we may go about trying to do that in a lot of different ways. Um, Usually the first thing we'll try is to stay drunk all the time. (laughs) I mean, this is, you know, basic good adolescent strategy, and most of us have to give it a try for a while, you know, see how that works. Uh, But it's, it's a move that says, if I'm really unhappy with how my life is going, maybe I can do something to make myself feel better and there are lots of little bottles out there saying, drink me. Uh, and we try them, right? Um, 
and you know the dilemma with that is uh, usually you know it looks at first like it's a technical problem of titration you know and dosage you know but it turns out that it's very hard to ever manage using substances to um, create equanimity in a way that doesn't lead us into a great deal of conflict with other people in the rest of life, even if they're trying the same thing. So uh, we, we wise up and we decide not to be so literal about it. And we uh, think, well, maybe we can uh, control or regulate our inner life some other less self-destructive way, and then we may end up in a place like uh, Zendo. <laughs> Uh, but again, with the same basic strategy of trying to, if I can't control the outer world, maybe at least I can get a grip on this inner world and find a way to stay in a certain state that's going to feel good all or most of the time. Uh, and that also works up to a point. Uh, but the dilemma is that... Um, <clears throat> We're in a world where we still find ourselves in a world uh, that is out of our control, and um, we we are sort of uh, have to decide what is the our relationship to other people if our strategy is one of inner equanimity, uh, because. By and large, if what you're trying to do is hold on to an inner state all the time, uh, other people become a great nuisance. <laughs> they, you know, they're just a constant buzzkill, you know, and they are just always intruding and demanding something, right? Like love and attention. <laughs> so, now it really ruins it for you. So the whole dilemma is even if you have this inner state, it's very hard to get to a place where you're impervious to the demands or needs of other people. And at a certain point it even occurs to you it might not be a wonderful place to be if you could make yourself impervious to the you know, life, death, and suffering of everyone around you. Right? Is, is that really something we want to aspire to? So mastery, in either inner or outer, really uh, bumps up against limits. Uh, and it may take us uh, a long time to give up on one or other of those strategies. But we still come back to this picture of um, delusion or being asleep and need to awaken. And we want to try to say, well, all right, there may be, if not mastery, uh, seeing things correctly, seeing things uh, from the right point of view might make the difference, even if it doesn't lead to control. But what is that not going to mean? What does it mean to see life directly or awake? Right? Now, one of the ways we're said to be misled is through 
concepts or narratives uh, or um, all the conceptual uh, machinery of the mind that uh, gets between us and that reality out there, right? So that um, we never see anything except in terms of what we already know, what we already believe, what we already expect. And, um, you know, you hear this um, very commonly when anybody tries to study things like eyewitness accounts of crimes, right? Uh, get ten witnesses and everybody's standing right there, the thing happens and you get ten different stories, right? Um, there's even some famous experiment where um, in one of these eyewitness things, I, I, I'm going to have to make some of this up, I don't remember it, but the people are asked to um, do something like um, uh, count how many times a, a basketball is being passed back and forth or, you know, between people on a court. And they're really told to pay attention to that and count it. And so they're shown this picture of it. And then in the middle of the game, a guy in a gorilla suit walks through the middle of, of the game. And uh, at the end, people are asked what they see. And they, well, they all say how many they counted, you know, of the shots. And then they ask, hey, see anything unusual? They, no, we just were watching a basketball game. And they're so focused on their task that they don't notice, you know, don't even remember seeing the guy in a gorilla suit walk through their field, right? Something like that. It's uh, trying to demonstrate how much what we see is subject to where our attention is, how we're focused and what we expect to see. Now there's a lot of talk in Buddhist literature, a lot of places, about somehow cutting through that level of conceptual consciousness and seeing things directly, right? It's a very powerful metaphor of... Um, you know, the, uh, the old, uh, what story, uh, you know, TV show was that, where it was uh, just the facts, ma'am, right? You know, don't tell me your interpretation, just what did you see, right? And so there's a notion that we can somehow get back to that, that when we really see things, or understand things, we get images like it'll be like drinking cold water for the first time. Nobody has to tell you if it's, you know, cold or hot, right? We want to have this kind of foundational um, level of certainty uh, grounded in sense experience. Yet the eyewitness experiments sort of tell us that sense experience is a very unreliable foundation. And the Heart Sutra, you know, has this line, no eye, no ear, nose, no nose, no tongue, no body, right? No mind. The negation of each one of those things is a negation of their claim to foundational status, right? Uh, where we want to go back and say, well, at least I can say, you know, I can trust my senses. Well... The problem is we can't, no matter what we do in this practice or anything else, 
free our sense our senses from our conceptual framework that that notion itself is a concept right uh, it's extremely pernicious concept right we could say that one of the most entangling concepts is the fantasy of being free of concepts <laughs> right I mean that right uh, that it's uh, it, it creates an illusion that there's a curtain we're going to pull back one day and then really see what it's like behind the curtain, right? Uh, and we spend a lot of time in the grip of that kind of imagery, which itself is just an image, right? Uh, but we think we're going to use images to deconstruct images. Uh, the fact is that you know when we see or hear something out of the ordinary, if we suddenly woke up, right, whatever that meant, and saw life differently, you know, the first thing we would probably do is turn to the person next to us and say, did you see that? <laughs> right? There's that the immediate, we need that kind of uh, uh, collaboration uh, of our reality to really believe it. Because uh, in a sense, one of the reasons we got into this whole mess is we sort of learned that we can be misled or deluded by our own thoughts. We're not all what we think we see is not always what's out there. And so, even if we think we've seen something different, how do we know? How do we know we're not like that paranoid schizophrenic who's sure you know that you've seen the truth, right? Well, there's no way to be sure of that. We can't check on anything inside to be sure. We, we've sort of, if you see, a, you know, you look at all the people around you who are certain of things, you learn that being certain is no guarantee of being right. Those two things exist on completely different uh, axes, dimensions, right? Unfortunately, right? There's just a very low correlation between being positive and being right. <laughs> right? Uh, and the dilemma is whether we really can believe that about ourselves. Right? You see, a lot of people will walk around uh, feeling like, well, I can see all those other people think they're right. Uh, and I, but I see through it. But personally, I'm I'm the embodiment of common sense. You know, somebody has to just be this natural common sense person who doesn't get stuck in a lot of, uh, you know, highfalutin ideas. I just see things the way they are, right? Uh, and you can do that at the level level of the common man, or you can do it at the level of the enlightened master. Mm. You know, both of them can be in the grip of, well, I just see things the way they are, right? Everybody else is deluded, right? Uh, this puts you in, gives you a certain smug self-confidence about your place in the world, but it also means that you inhabit a world of fools, right? Which is sort of, after a while, a tad alienating, right? It's not really... Fun uh, in the long run to think I've got it and you don't, right? To everybody, right? Um, 
Now, one of the things that, you know, uh, say, uh, uh, a phenomenon of modern day life is that when people have odd experiences that they think are special, they will now be able to go to their compu- computer and Google Zen Master Upper West Side and find their way to my door and tell me, I've had this incredible experience, what does it mean? Right? Uh, it's interesting, you know, that people are able to do that now. You don't have to walk a thousand miles across China, you know, to go to <laughs> some mountaintop, you know, to do it. You know, you just go to 74th Street, you know, it's easy. Um, and it's interesting that there are two, two kinds of experiences that people very typically have. Uh, uh, the one is that they'll, they'll come in and I've, um, they'll say, I had this incredible moment where I felt one with everything. And I say, wow, that sounds great. Uh, and, they say, and I say, and now, yeah, what, what is it, uh, what difference has that made in your life? And they almost always say, well, now I feel different from everybody. <laughs> Uh, so I say, let me get this straight. You had experience in which you were one with all of life, and now you feel different from everybody. And they say, yeah. And I say, is there something wrong with that? <laughs> and so there's, you know, there's an internal contradiction there. And so a lot that, that can be a good place to start to practice to figure out what how that works. The other experience is they'll say, I had this incredible moment where everything seemed perfect, just as it was. I say, that's great, that's really wonderful. Uh, and then what? And then they say, well, it went away. <laughs> uh, and, and I say, and, and then after it went away, well, then things were just terrible. I want to get that other experience back. Uh, that experience of how everything was fine just as it is, uh, uh, it <laughs> went away and now things, not, nothing is right the way it is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so... This is how people um, get started in, in this business. <laughs> um, and the whole dilemma of these things are these experiences which have a great deal of certitude about them uh, almost inevitably have built into them this inner contradiction, right? That the, the very thing that's that feels like it's connecting me to everybody else, or the thing that's making everything fine the way it is, immediately generates its opposite. Immediately. I mean, you know, or within a few hours or a few days, right? It's, it's almost in a, uh, an immediate built-in contradiction that we have to come to terms with. So all of these things are, you know, aspects of this problem of um, what does it mean to try to be certain about your own experience. Uh, And if you can't be certain about it, if there's nothing foundational either in sense perception or in this kind of um, transcendental realization, if neither of those are in some sense foundational, what are you left with? What uh, what else is there? Long pause. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, one of the things we find out is that uh, as much as we want to uh, get some once and for all ground of our own experience, uh, whatever we try for uh, eludes our grasp, whether it's mastery of the outside world, mastery of the inner world, a foundation in immediate sense experience, a foundation in a kind of transcendental realization, every one of those things we sort of cycle through and find out there, there's no bottom there. It, it, it's not grounded the way we, we think it is. Now one of the things we chant is that each moment life as it is the only, <coughs> the only teacher. Um, this is very true, uh, but not really in the way we would wish. Um, life uh, as a teacher uh, does what? Uh, it's very good at teaching the lessons of um, impermanence, right? And uh, if you pay attention, the, the lesson of uh, karma and interconnection, right? Uh, what it's not so good at, or what it doesn't give us that we want, is uh, telling us what to do about that. Right? Uh, when we think of teacher, like you know, me sitting up here, we sort of say, "Yeah, and and what are we supposed to do about that?" Right? <laughs> so, if life is the only teacher, uh, and it teaches you everything's impermanent, everything's interconnected. And then it stops. Right? And we want the end then, and it doesn't happen. Now, what we do here, in a certain way, is sit at that, get, try to arrive honestly at that point and then just stay, stay there, sit with that in our own experience, uh, where we don't fill in that blank. Because uh, in some sense, it can't be filled. Although our whole life, our whole practice is about trying to fill it in. Uh, we stay with that, that reality. Um, what we're waking up to, what this delusion is about, is that there's an answer to this kind of question, right? The delusion is in that there's a curtain to pull away, that there's a ground to, to stand on, that there's an answer to the and then part, right? Um, when we say waking to a dream within a dream, uh, we wake up to another dream, something that is insubstantial, can't be grasped, it's hard to validate outside of itself, right? It's not what we want to wake up to when we have this metaphor of waking up. But that's really what this practice uh, is about. Um, being honest about all the solutions that we try 
and where we're left with when uh, uh, they run out. And I'll let you just sit with that. <laughs> <laughs> 